Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up, Winston Churchill's surprising passion for science. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding and how our bodies maintain the walls around our organs. When cells die, we thought they would just create holes in that barrier, but they don't. Plus the material that behaves bizarrely when you poke it. This is The Nature Podcast for February the 16th, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. First up this week, Noah Baker finds out about the scientific side of one of Britain's most iconic political leaders. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Rousing words which echo in the annals of history. Winston Churchill is known as an iconic wartime leader, orator, author and even painter, but he's less known as a strident supporter of science. During the Second World War, Churchill invested in research, leading to the development of radar. Churchill sought advice from statisticians on how best to defeat German U-boats. Military officials complained about Churchill's science-first approach, arguing, are we fighting this enemy using weapons or slide rules? to which Churchill is said to have simply puffed his cigar and responded, Good idea. Let's try the slide rule. But Churchill's passion for science ran deeper than just government policy, as is demonstrated in a previously unpublished essay originally penned by Churchill in 1939. It tackles the topic of extraterrestrial life, and it came as a real surprise to astrophysicist and author Mario Livio when he unexpectedly came across the essay. Uh, I, I was giving a talk um, at, at Westminster College uh, in the US. Westminster College is also home of the National Churchill Museum, and curator James Riley brought the previously unseen essay to show to Livio to get a scientist's perspective. He gave me a copy of the essay, and uh, you know we agreed that I will read it, and uh, then you know let him know what I think of it. The essay had a striking impact on Livio. I, I honestly had no idea that. Churchill had such a profound interest in science as to, uh, you know, think about this in, in, in a deep way and uh, even write uh, essays about this. I, I, I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding that, that Churchill would delve into such topics. What really impressed him was the way Churchill approached his writing. 
he really approaches the problem the way a scientist would. First thing, he realizes that this is a fascinating question, you know, are we alone in the universe? He first, you know, tries to define what life means. It may seem that this is rather like the well-known story of the elephant. We may not be able to define an elephant, but we know one when we see it. About life, that is not quite true. Uh, then, you know, he tries to, to think, okay, so what are the conditions that are necessary for life? If life in the form we know it is to exist anywhere, it can only be in the regions of comparatively moderate temperature, say, between a few degrees of frost and the boiling point of water. Then he goes methodically about the bodies in the solar system and looks at each one of those. Uh, then it looks at the possibility of, you know, are there other planets? You know, none were known at the time, you know, outside the solar system. So he really uh, advances in, in this problem just the way, you know, we would today, uh, scientists would today. Uh, so I, I find this just incredible. It wasn't just Churchill's methodical approach which struck Livio his scepticism. You know, he used a particular model, for example, for planet formation, uh, which was a model from 1917 by astrophysicist James Jeans. And uh, that model turned out to be wrong. But, you know, at the time, he wasn't sure that it's wrong or not. And that it was the only model he knew. So at first, he describes that model and what the consequences of, of that model are. Uh, uh, and the consequences, actually, if that model were true, were that, uh, you know, life may be extraordinarily rare. But then he says, This speculation depends upon the hypothesis that planets were formed in this way. Perhaps they were not. Maybe this model is wrong, you know, he says. So <laughs> this is exactly the, the attitude that a scientist uh, would adopt. Churchill wasn't a trained scientist but he clearly highly valued the way scientists think and sought counsel from experts of the day. He was the first prime minister to hire a scientific advisor, physicist and Churchill's friend, Frederick Lindemann. When the war broke out, he realised, I think, that science is going to be key for success in the war. And as a result of that, I think he felt uh, that he really needs to have somebody uh, with whom he can consult on scientific matters. Livio believes that Churchill's approach to science should act as a lesson for modern-day politicians. You know, if anything, uh, we are more dependent on science today uh, to solve the biggest problems that uh, humanity is facing uh, than even at the time of Churchill. So, you know, if Churchill found it important uh, uh, to appoint a science advisor and to meet with scientists and, and to listen to them um, in order to, you know, inform his decisions, uh, then I, I think that is certainly true today. And I would have hoped that, you, you know, any high-ranking uh, politician today that has to make decisions uh, that at least partly, if not wholly, uh, depend at some level on science uh, should have, uh, you know, a science advisor. I, for one, am not so immensely impressed by the success we are making of our civilizations here that I am prepared to think we are the only spot in this immense universe which contains living, thinking creatures. 
or that we are the highest type of mental and physical development which has ever appeared in the vast compass of space and time. That was Mario Livio speaking with Noah Baker. Quotes from Churchill's essay were kindly provided by John Riley at the National Churchill Museum in Missouri, US, and were read by Richard Hudson. You can read more about the work in a comment piece written by Livio at nature.com forward slash news. Still to come in the news chat, how Turkey's tumultuous political situation is affecting scientists. We get an update from our correspondent Alison Abbott, who's just back from visiting several labs in the country. And in the research highlights, deep ocean pollution and cool buildings. Now, though, researcher Corentin Coulet creates materials unlike any other. Last August, he published a paper detailing a shape-shifting cube. When the cube is squished, a smiley face emerges from one of the previously flat sides. Here's Corentin. It's not really a property that you would relate to a material, but more a property that you would associate to a machine. But Corentin isn't out of ideas for these bizarre metamaterials just yet. One of my <laughs> endeavours is to push the limits of what uh, we can do with metamaterials. And so, Corentin has developed a metamaterial that responds strangely when you give it a push. You see, normal materials don't care which side you push them from. It's easiest to imagine if you think about a plate of jelly. That's jello to you Americans. Take this jelly conveniently placed between me and Kerry. Mm. Right, I'm ready for the jelly. I don't think you are ready for this jelly, because I haven't finished explaining. <sighs> OK, I'll wait patiently for the jelly. Thanks. OK, so if I push my side of the jelly, Kerry's side will wibble over by a certain amount. Yeah, by about, what, 10 centimetres or so? Yeah, it looks about 10 centimetres. Now, if I stop and Kerry pushes her side with the same force I pushed with... Pushing the jelly now. ...then I will measure, yep, the same 10 centimetres of wibble on my side. And this should happen with all materials. It doesn't matter if Kerry or I push it, the opposite side should move by the same amount regardless. But, surprise, surprise, Corentin's new metamaterial doesn't behave like this. His material wibbles more if you push it on one side versus if you push the other. Handy for building things that don't get disturbed by vibrations, for example. I called him up to see how he did it. The idea was to break the symmetry of motion. And to do this, uh, we need to first have a non-symmetric structure. And second was to break uh, one of the assumptions of, of the theorem uh, that uh, grants is its, uh, this uh, property, uh, which is uh, linearity. And so linearity is uh, very simple and intuitive. And you, you encounter it when you take a spring. And if you want to deform the spring by a certain amount, you have to, to exert a certain force. And uh, if you want to pull on the spring uh, twice as much, you have to exert twice as much force. And that's linearity. Now, uh, by using a specific architecture, uh, which can uh, reconfigure when you pull on it, you can break this proportionality, this linearity. And uh, that's the second ingredient that we used. Looking at the figure here, it looks kind of like a fishbone, about 10 centimetres long, with a spine down the middle and then ribs along the length. But what would I see if I pull one end of this spine versus if I were to pull the other end? What you see in the, in the paper is that you see that the, the structure snaps. So if you, if you pull it from one side, uh, you're going to trigger motion, but only in the near vicinity of uh, where you were pulling. 
but the structure is designed such that now if you pull or push on the other side, the, the motion that you trigger is going to propagate across the whole structure. And therefore, you have that makes a very strong difference between pulling from the one side or pulling from the other. When you finally managed to come up with this design, how did you feel when you actually tested it out and it did what what you were hoping it would do? <laughs> I uh, well, when you see it, it, it like it sounds so simple. So I was like, okay, is this isn't that trivial? <laughs> and uh, that, that's always nice to have a, a desktop scale experiments as I do because then you can really see uh, what you observe. Well, metamaterials have been in the news quite a bit lately. That you actually worked on a cube where if you squish it, a smiley face appears. Can these approaches be combined in a useful way or are they just kind of all useful in different settings? I think what uh, what I do is, yeah, including the, this smiley cube, is to uh, create uh, or augment the toolbox of the functionalities that you can obtain using uh, metamaterials. And uh, I'm very happy to uh, primarily focus on, on that job. But uh, then I guess these concepts of RFD have to be taken uh, on board uh, by people who are interested in applications or more applied, who are interested in, in, in mastering how uh, objects deform uh, for applications. So for instance, people uh, using making fabricating shoes or prothesis are very interested in, in uh, having tools to be able to, to control how, how things deform and transmit motion. Uh, as a researcher, I mean, I'm mostly interested in developing new concepts uh, and then uh, transmit it and give it to, to people who might be uh, interested to use them for their specific applications. What's next in your, in your plans for interesting metamaterials? As, uh, as you saw, we have actually materials that are used to uh, channel, say, mechani- mechanical energy in a smart way. So transmit motion in one way or having a programmable, uh, morphable texture. But then what I would be very interested in in the near future is to find also ways to convert not only mechanical energy, but for instance, to convert chemical or electromagnetic energy into this mechanical energy. Uh, there's a lot to be done. That was Corentin Coulet, who's now based at the University of Amsterdam's Institute of Physics. Check out the paper at nature.com forward slash nature. And to see a video of Corentin's smiley face metamaterial, head to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Coming up, we're going to build a wall. A cell wall, that is. But first, some more of the best research in bite-sized form. It's the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. Pollution has managed to infiltrate even the deepest chasms of the Pacific Ocean. A UK-based team sent a deep-sea lander to depths of up to 10,000 metres and used a funnel to catch some of the little critters living there. In some crustaceans from the Mariana Trench, levels of one type of pollutant called polychlorinated biphenyls were 50 times higher than in crabs from one of China's most polluted rivers. These chemicals were banned in the 1970s, but they probably ended up at the bottom of the ocean when plastic debris or contaminated dead animals sank. The paper is in Nature Ecology and Evolution. A thin film could help cool buildings by radiating their heat through the atmosphere into space. Scientists in Colorado manufactured the film by embedding tiny glass microbeads in a polymer and then coating the back, the building side, with silver. 
The film reflects most sunlight, and it's particularly good at reflecting an infrared wavelength that passes straight out of the atmosphere. They're not the first to make this kind of material, but theirs is cheaper to make and works around the clock. The paper is in Science. Adam, what do you think is the toughest, most badass organ? Maybe the liver, because it has to deal with all that alcohol you throw at it. Oh no, wait, maybe the brain, because it has to bury all the difficult thoughts. Or the heart, because it can heal after it's broken. I don't know. Well, I was actually angling for skin. Skin? Yeah. Out of everything we throw at our bodies, our skin gets the brunt of it. Wind, sun, UV rays, pokes and scratches, bacteria on everything we touch. Skin has to be a pretty tough wall to stop the outside getting in. It's an example of a category of biological walls called epithelia. Epithelia are layers of cells that cover the internal and external surfaces of our bodies. So our skin is an epithelium, but there are also very, very thin epithelia covering all of our organs. These layers may only be one or two cells thick, but they perform vital functions in protecting the organ from any bacteria or toxins or harmful substances that might have found their way into the body. There's a paper out this week on how an epithelial layer knows when to start growing new cells. But the really important question, according to its author Jody Rosenblatt, is how the body maintains a balance of growing new cells and killing old ones. Jody told Sharmini Bundell why the cells of our epithelia are such a puzzle. They're very tightly linked cells. They look like bricks in a wall. So you would think, that doesn't look that challenging. Yeah, it can act as a barrier. But the thing that surprised us is that these cell types are turning over by cell death and cell division, at some of them in the highest rates in the body. And we think, how is it maintaining this barrier when there are cells that are dividing and dying? When cells die, we thought they would just create holes in that barrier, but they don't. And then the other thing is, how do you make that tight link between the number of cells dividing and the number of cells dying? Because if more cells die than are formed from division, then there aren't enough cells, and and then what would happen? We think that could really be a central cause of a lot of inflammatory diseases, things like asthma, colitis. And then on the flip side, I was saying epithelia turn over at the fastest rates. We think that's probably why those are the types of cells that get cancers the most often. So 90% of all cancers arise in these types of simple epithelia. So the balance between cell death and cell division is really important. And, and you've been interested for a while now in how the epithelia maintain that balance. And before we get on to your, your latest paper, your previous research was on cell death, so how the barrier can work if the cells that make it regularly die and leave a hole. They don't just form holes. What they do instead is they get shoved out by their neighboring cells. And what we found then drives that is just simple crowding. So there's too many cells, some get shoved out to die. And that's what you call the cells getting extruded, pushed out of the layer. And you're also able to work out how the cells sense when they're overcrowded and should start extruding. Yeah, so so that's a, a sensor that we found called piezo-1. And it senses the crowding and then it will spark a a spark of calcium, and then one cell will go on to extrude. We don't know yet what drives one cell to extrude versus another cell, but we just know that it happens in regions of the epithelium that are 1.6-fold more crowded. So once they get around that level, then they say, somebody's got to go. So you've kind of found the the trigger for how the, the message is communicated. Yeah. 
So uh, that's how the, the, the cells in the epithelia know that they're overcrowded, know they need to get rid of some people. Um, and then you've got a, a new paper out this week, which is about the opposite. How do cells know when they need to sort of strengthen that barrier? We just started thinking about what happens in the case where there's not enough cells. Could stretch, on the other hand, activate cells to divide? And part of the reason that we started thinking this is that's what we saw. So when we were just looking at lots of different epithelia, we always noticed that the regions where they were dividing were more stretched. And, and actually, when we went in to measure it, they were, again, 1.6-fold more stretched than the places where they weren't. And that makes sense, that not enough cells leads to cell divisions, the opposite of the first study where overcrowding led to cell death. Um, and, and you looked into what the actual channel was, again, that was sort of triggering it. Um, and it was piezo, again, the, the same channel. We were really kind of shocked because we were thinking, how does one single stretch-activated channel control two opposing things with opposing readouts? And, you know, all the time knowing that the main thing that it did was cause a calcium spark. And so calcium sparks are just this very simple signal that is like an off-on switch. So that suggested to us that it depends on what the cells are primed to do, and then the calcium just says, yep, you're on, you're going to do it. In the case of the cells extruding, maybe they can't divide. In the case where the cells are stretched, we know that they're acting on cells that are in a certain stage of the cell cycle to push them into the last stage of the cell cycle. So you think that... In an epithelium that's already stretched, the cells are primed to divide, whereas in an epithelium that's overcrowded, they're primed to extrude. That's true. And then there's another aspect. So that, that piezo is localized to a different region. So we think that could also control its output. So the piezo one channels ended up in a different region in the cell, perhaps in a, in a different membrane in the cell. But then we don't know how it gets there. Is there another signal controlling that? And and we don't know how the cells are primed to divide or extrude in the first place. So actually this finding about piezo detecting stretching or crowding is just one tiny part of a much bigger puzzle. Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're at this really exciting stage where there's a lot of uh, guesses about what's going on. But we think that understanding what controls the cell division and cell death in epithelia is of critical importance. And now, as we've discovered this whole signaling that's involved in, in extrusion, and we're hoping in the cell division pathway, um, we're finding that it's misregulated in cancers we have no cure for yet. And so by understanding that fundamental piece, we'll be much better able to actually treat these types of diseases rather than just try and patch, you know, and, and repair the symptoms of these diseases, which is what we've been doing. That was Jodie Rosenblatt from the University of Utah talking to Sharmini Bundell about her epithelia, more details of which can be found in a paper and a news and views in this week's issue, nature.com slash nature. Time for the news now, and this week we have a special report on Turkish science. The Turkish government wants to plough funding into science, but its bold vision might be compromised by the volatile political situation there. The conflict between the government and Kurdish separatists has been escalating, which some scientists have spoken out against. And in July 2016, the military attempted a coup. That ended up involving scientists as well, because the group thought to be behind the coup had infiltrated universities and other institutions, so the Turkish president, Erdogan, wanted to get rid of them, but he rather threw the baby out with the bathwater and lots of academics lost their jobs. The latest wave of dismissals came just last week when 330 academics were sacked. 
Nature's senior European correspondent Alison Abbott visited Turkey to see how scientists are coping. Alison, welcome to the podcast. How have academics been affected by the political situation in Turkey? After the coup attempt, Erdogan was keen to remove the Gulenists, and I think most scientists agree this is something that needed to be done. But during these purges, which have come in waves of um, decrees from directly from Erdogan, in the universities, 7,300 and more have already lost their jobs. So to find out more about what it's like trying to actually do science in this environment, Alison, you travelled to Turkey in January this year. So I went there in January because I'd been, I'd been following Turkey for many years and I just really wanted to get into the labs and ask people directly there what they're thinking in this very sensitive time. Uh, I was very surprised when I went there to learn of a serious government plan to build up a strong research base. This I found completely at odds with what I heard from the scientists who are all very nervous about what's going to happen. Some actually are in the process of leaving, some in the process of planning to leave. People who are very good there, who have um, you know, big international grants to help them work independently, ERC grants, EMBO grants, um, they have the freedom to move those grants outside to other countries. And um, I think a lot of them are just going to do this. And the big plan will have to be fulfilled with you know, people who are not in the first ranks of research. And that is not what the government wants. As you say, the, the plan that Turkey seems to have to boost its science uh, enterprise into the future seems completely at odds, doesn't it, with the current situation? But what did you learn about the science plan that is meant to be going ahead? Well, they're building, um, they're creating, this all happened like since 2014. They've created um, a system of national research centres, which didn't exist before. All the research was more or less carried out in universities. Um, and universities are highly bureaucratised and highly centralised. They can't make any of their own decisions. They've created a National Institutes of Health, like the US NIH, which has six different institutes uh, with research centres, and they're recruiting this year alone 300 um, new posts. Um, they have um, uh, introduced a competition between universities to make some of them like elite, give them like elite status like the German Excellence Initiative. And these universities will be rewarded by having more positions, more money, and also a little bit of autonomy to make their own decisions. Uh, what else? They've uh, opened up 2,000 new PhD positions so that the, the new plans will you know, have a, a new generation to feed into them. It's very systematic. And there must be some mixed feelings then amongst the scientists you visited about this... Uh you know, brave new world versus what they've all been through just lately? Yes, of course, there's mixed feelings. And a lot of um, Turkish scientists who had trained abroad had come home expressly because they wanted to work at home. They wanted to be home with their families. They wanted to help build up the research base in Turkey again. And now they're seeing what's happening. Um, they don't particularly feel safe they don't know what's going to happen politically from one day to the next. The coup has upset them. 
the government's response to the coup with all these purges has upset them. So they do understand that the government plans to build up a research base and they find that encouraging. It's just personally, you know, it's difficult. With everyone feeling so nervous about it, are the government going to be able to go ahead with their plan? Will scientists eventually start going going back? I think the government will go ahead with its plan anyway. I mean, the plan is now underway. It's really the question, how successful can it be? Uh, it's better than not having a plan at all, but if you can't attract the best scientists to work in your system, then obviously you can fill it with scientists who are not the best. Um, that's not so good. Alison Abbott on the line from Munich. You can read more about her visit to Turkey in her feature at nature.com slash news. That's all we've got time for this week. But if you didn't get enough of last week's story on how we might get a spacecraft to our nearest exoplanet, head over to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. There's some pretty cool animations on how it all might happen. See you next week. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.